ladies and gentlemen, to Grizzly Bear Blues Live. It has been too long. I've been a busy guy. Hopefully you can understand my name is Joe Molinax. I am the host of this here podcast, and I am also the site manager of Grizzly Bear Blues, the uh, team site on the Memphis Grizzlies for the SB Nation blog network, the team site for the Memphis Grizzlies over at SB Nation. Lots to get to in this episode. A lot has happened and transpired. I'm not going to put you through a three-hour podcast, but I am excited to spend about 30 minutes here talking with one of the best up-and-coming analysts of the NBA, the draft. Anything that involves learned basketball, uh, this guy is kind of at the forefront of it right now. He's been on with Peter Edmiston in Memphis a uh, good friend of GBB, and I've listened to his stuff, and he does a great job over at uh, at his site. So we're going to talk to him momentarily. But first, ways to get in touch with our podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Mullinax. You can follow, excuse me, you can follow the blog, Grizzly Bear Blues, at SBN Grizzlies. Of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at GBB Live as well. And you want to make sure that you're subscribing on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Stitcher, anywhere that you can get a podcast, the SB Nation Podcast Network is likely there, and you can be a part of the GBB Podcast Network so you never miss an episode of GBB Live or the Core 4. Parker and Nate have done an awesome job kind of carrying the weight of the podcasting the past month or so, Um, but I'm getting back into it with this episode, of course, and with my guest at this time. Again, I'm really excited to have him on. I really enjoy his work. And it's really kind of a cool opportunity to talk to somebody else who loves Brandon Clark as much as me. He is an attorney uh, by day. That's his day job. But he founded a website called The Stipend, and it is a really, really good site. I highly recommend it. Uh, Cole's Wicker is his name, and I am happy to bring him on now. Cole, thank you so much for making some time for us to talk about our one true love, Brandon Clark. Of course, man. Anything for Brandon Clark. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Cole, we'll, we'll jump right in here. And like I said, I, I've been away from for a little bit from the podcasting, so I'm not going to try to cover everything in one foul swoop. But I do want to focus on Brandon Clark, A, because, as I mentioned, uh, you and I share an affinity for him. But B, I think he's really kind of a solid launching point into analyzing this new front office and the various moves that they've made. So we're, we're going to do a little progression here. We're going to start with Brandon and we're going to branch out. We're going to build upon the selection of Brandon Clark with the 21st overall pick in the 2019 NBA draft. The Grizzlies make it a point to trade up to get him. And it's looked like it's worked out so far. He was named the Summer League Las Vegas MVP. He was the MVP of the championship game as the Grizzlies win uh, the somewhat meaningless, not entirely meaningless, but somewhat meaningless Summer League championship. And he looked the part of not just a rotation player, but a key core long-term cog in the Grizzlies machine. He was as good as advertised as a rim protector. He really finished well, but he did things cold that I think, and I know that you wrote about it and talked about it in your analysis, but he did stuff that I was surprised he was capable of doing at this stage, like passing out of the pick and roll to open shooters in the corner, like adjusting his body, whether it's through verticality or, or just kind of swinging his arm in a certain way to avoid a foul on the defensive end he was a lot more cerebral than I thought he would be not to say that I didn't think he was capable of it but just at this stage of his career to see the way that he was able to dominate not just physically but also on a mental level the game of basketball 
Of course, he's a little more mature than a lot of the guys he played against. His age probably has something to do with that. But at some point, you just stop making excuses and you say he's pretty damn good at basketball, right? That was always the appeal for me. He was the second best basketball player in the country last year behind a generational prospect. He was really the second best functional athlete in the draft and in all college basketball as well. So that's always been his calling card. He doesn't meet the prototypes of a lot of what the modern NBA is, meaning more like switching, even though he can do that, but like rim protection, the wingspan, everybody wants length on defense. They want shooting on offense. He doesn't bring either one of those two things, but there's so much nuance to his game that I think can add up to being a very, very high-level NBA player. You, you noted the ability to protect the rim, but it's his ability to adjust to contort his body in midair. He's incredibly good as far as body control there. He targets the ball, you know, mid-move. You can see him adjust to an offensive player, you know, up and under action. And Brandon Clark, he kind of mirrors that with his hands and his arms, and he has incredibly quick hands. So you see him get blocks that way. His rotational awareness is high-level. Already verticality is through the roof, and his quickness off the floor, I think, compensates for a lot of his lack of length. So you, when you really look at his game overall, there's just so much nuance. Like with shooting, he has incredible touch on the move. We didn't see that as much in summer league. He missed some bunnies around the rim, like some runners that he usually makes. I think he's going to get even better there. He'll be able to show that to Memphis fans. But yeah, I mean, we project that back. His shot three years ago started as a shot put from his right shoulder. It was like, I've never seen a basketball player shoot a ball like that. You fast forward three years, and this guy is making above-the-break threes. I was counting in Summer League. I think he had five or six dead swishes. And you just don't see that from a non-shooter, and that's kind of what he was branded as, someone who's not going to be able to space the floor at all. And I think that, there's again, it's just a microcosm of there being more nuance here and the fact that his ceiling is a lot higher than a lot of people gave him credit for. It really is. And, and do you think it's kind of ageism in that way? Because, like you said, he he was much more – adept at controlling his body than he was given credit for he definitely has a better shooting stroke and he's shown improvement just from the end of his his season at Gonzaga he he was better as a shooter than he was then in terms of his form do you think a lot of it at least when it comes to NBA circles is the idea that oh he's already so old how much better he can be kind of weighing that as compared to a 19 year old who theoretically has more, uh, in air quotes here, potential. I do believe that the NBA gets caught up in that a little bit, the idea of a 19-year-old being a better investment than a 23-year-old or a 22-year-old, even though that player is Brandon Clark, who, if it wasn't for Zion Williamson, you could easily argue was the best college basketball player in the country last season. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think we see a lot of youth plus athleticism and shooting equals upside in the draft. And you want to superimpose upside on the players that don't really have it. They don't have the requisite skill level. Most of the time, they don't have the requisite feel. And that's something that Brandon Clark has, not necessarily high level skill level, but he has elite level feel. And that's something that players don't learn. I don't care if he's 22 or 18. If you project every freshman one and done in this draft class, how many guys are realistically going to get to even the stratosphere that Brandon Clark has as far as basketball intelligence? I would say almost nobody. And that's where I value just good basketball players. If that basketball player is 18 years old compared to a 22-year-old, I would take the 18-year-old. Like in 2018, there was Jaron Jackson. He was the young, one of the youngest players in the class, and I had him number two on my board. And, and that, some of that was the development curve, the age curve. So you expect him to get better, but he's already so good. And I think that's what we're overall looking for in the draft. We're not looking for run-and-jump athleticism. We're not looking for you know, not realistic upside. We're looking for good basketball players, and Brandon Clark is that. Refresh my memory. Where did you have Brandon Clark on your overall big board going into the draft? I had him number three. I had him 
behind, of course, Zion in tier one. Then I had a four-man tier two. I had John Morant two, even though I think Brandon Clark's going to be better right now. I would just take a shot on Morant's upside. So Clark three, Culver four, and then RJ five. Okay. No, that makes sense. I had Clark number four. So again, you and I were, were on the same page. I am curious as to your take on RJ Barrett watching Summer League because I think in the last game the Knicks played, he looked a lot better. But it was almost like everything that people or uh, criticized Barrett for was on full display in Las Vegas. And of course, Summer League is not the best place to make definitive statements about players. I mean, Josh Selby and Damian Lord were co-MVPs back in 2012. Uh, <laughs> one of those guys just signed one of the biggest contracts in NBA history, and the other one is Josh Selby. So it's not like it, it's an indictment against Barrett. But at the same time, are you more nervous after watching him? Because I'll be honest, I was one of the people in Memphis that was beating the drum saying John Moran should be the pick, but I would like for them to have a long, hard look at R.J. Barrett just to be sure. I'm glad I said the first part because Barrett did not look like a guy that was worthy of the number three overall selection in Summer League. Yeah, he looked as advertised to me. I've watched a ton of his films. Everything he showed, all the issues were apparent. They're not fabricated. They're not like prospect hate. It's like if you watch this guy play consistently at Duke, even before Duke, there are skill level issues. His handle isn't very good right now. He's not super shifty. He got James Harden comparisons. He doesn't have nearly that level of shooting ability. James Harden was far more advanced as far as body control, quick dribble moves. He had, you know, advanced moves back in at Arizona State. RJ has never been that shifty kind of guy. He's more of a power player. He's struggling to change directions quickly. He's more of a guy who wants to drop his shoulder and get into you. And we saw all those issues creating space at Summer League, but they were evident before. So I, I don't see... There's a lot of extremist takes with RJ. Some people are like, oh my God, like why would he be top five even? Maybe even top 10. I think it's going to be a process with him. It's not like he's going to walk into the NBA and be a game changer. There's so much skill refinement that he needs to make. He needs to improve his decision making. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. We saw that mostly in the beginning of Summer League where he would miss Kevin Knox on a drive and kick opportunity. He'd be a wide open pass and he was triple teamed. He does that stuff all the time, but he also shows you the passing acumen, which he improved on as Summer League progress he was better in pick and roll more willing on like pin down curl over the top looks etc so i think this is going to be more of a process you have to be patient with him it's not like this guy's a game changer though i was never he was never to me a guy that was like this you have to get him in the draft he was never like a pure get what you're betting on most of all is this guy's a worker and he's going to put on the time he's super competitive and he's going to be in the gym he's going to be improving and that's kind of the main allure with him it's not like he's again this most dynamic nba ready talent Absolutely. I think that's a great way to pull, put it. I'm talking with Coles Wicker here. He is the founder of The Stipend. Make sure you're following him on Twitter if you don't already do so. Again, he does a tremendous job, Cole does, over there. Uh, make sure you're following him at Coles Wicker. Now, Cole, I, I'm really curious as to how you perceive the Grizzlies roster, obviously focusing on Summer League still here a little bit, and then we'll we'll continue to expand out from there. You know, Brandon Clark is kind of the home run that this front office hit, at least initially. But there's other players that you watch, and they they also look like that they were targets of this front office, this new analytical brain trust kind of idea, this young group of guys. And like a John Conchar is a great example. John Conchar, he is uh, in his minutes, he looked the part of a player who could contribute on a variety of levels wasn't drafted, was one of the first guys signed to a two-way contract almost immediately after the draft ended. So Memphis obviously made him a target. Uh, the, the types of guys that they're 
looking for. You know, we can talk a little bit about Tyus Jones later. They they fit a certain mold in terms of their percentages as pick and roll defenders or pick and roll finishers. You know, they're clearly emphasizing the statistical and advanced statistics way of viewing uh, the NBA and and their roster. How do you connect the the process of what they've done to that summer league roster? Like, is it just uh, a symptom or is it something that's kind of kind of move forward and continue to be, you know, they're going to look for diamonds in the rough in that way? Because Memphis, if we're being honest with each other, isn't attracting any major free agents. They had to max out Chandler Parsons just to get Chandler Parsons. And no disrespect to Chandler Parsons, he was a pretty big free agent when he was signed. But obviously, hindsight being 2020 probably wasn't worth that contract. So uh, do you see it as them kind of playing the money ball kind of system? Do you think they're just trying to be smart about their way of doing basketball business? How do you connect their summer league moves to their overall schemes and plans? Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's one that I think we're going to find out more information about moving forward. It's hard to say. Are they just taking shots on guys who have high box plus minus. For example, Brandon Clark had a historically high box plus minus. minus. John Concher has great advanced numbers, still percentage, that kind of thing. So I don't know if it's a pure analytics play in air quotes or if it's just these guys are really good at basketball. Maybe it's both. And there's often an intersection between stats and the eye test that doesn't get reported on. It's like there's such a dichotomy between those two things. It's not either or. Most of the time, those two things are interrelated. So I'm very curious to find out about that. And like Tyus Jones signing him, one of the best decision makers, you know, assist to turnover ratio is historically high in the half court. Is that the the motivator behind signing him? Or is it the fact that, you know, he can just he has command of the court like he can play pick and roll he can get the guys the ball that you need to get the ball he's going to pass to jaron jackson he's going to make high level reads i'm really fascinated to see if this front office under Kleiman is more of just you know an analytics play and in, and that's how they're going to approach it or if it's just like an intersection and a culmination of several different components that really features basketball feel because that's what i look at this and say like john conchar was one of the best team defenders at summer league he had a ton of deflections a ton of steals has incredibly fast hands one of the smartest players there but i think he had something like nine points in all of his games he was three of 13 from the floor like he didn't shoot he didn't really score in vegas but he did everything else really well and that's what really interests me about this pick and like putting assets forth someone like that just because so much of like oh this this guy's a shot maker but Conchar's not that he's a guy who might impact the game in different ways he just needs to shoot so there's gonna be a lot of information that we learn and glean moving forward from this front office and I'm pretty fascinated to see what the result is I love and, and I go to your site often I love one of your more recent articles that you wrote talking about free agency before it began officially you had a section in the post called the intriguing restricted combo guard slash situational initiator trio uh, you had a Tomas Sadoransky sandwich, and I wanted Sadoransky in, in Memphis as part of my <laughs> restricted free agency preview. He was a little too rich for the Grizzlies' blood. But the bread to this Sadoransky sandwich, the Sadowich, if you will, uh, was Tyus Jones and DeLon Wright. And obviously, those are two names that are very relevant to Grizzlies fans. It was one of the more fascinating debates on social media and on our blog over at grizzlybearblues.com that I've ever seen among Grizzlies fans because I think that people were passionate about their take. Like, there's a lot of people that think that this was the first real misstep of the Kleiman crew in terms of choosing Jones over Wright because they believe that DeLon Wright is the better basketball player right now. And it was debated hotly, but it wasn't like it got personal. You know, I you see it on Twitter every day. People, you know, will call you a, 
a prick or something just because you don't think that somebody can shoot the three at the level that they did at Las Vegas Summer League. This was not that. Um, but it was really kind of interesting to kind of pick people's brains about the Tyus Jones versus DeLon Wright question. And it also ties into what we're talking about with this front office, uh, the idea of how they're building this franchise and how they're building this roster. Uh, a lot of folks think that one of the main reasons they went with Tyus Jones was the age of 23 compared to DeLon Wright being a pretty old uh, second contract kind of guy in terms of being 27. You know, DeLon was probably ready to be a starter and Tyus doesn't need that. And it, it makes sense for Memphis, at least to me, but I'm curious. And obviously, again, I wrote the I read the article and you should go over to uh, the stapen.com, excuse me, and check it out there. Uh, if you haven't already done so, he talks a lot about Tyus and DeLon and the things they do well, the things that maybe they don't do so well. I'm curious how you perceive Memphis's choice to go with Tyus as a fit as opposed to DeLon Wright. Yeah, I think you touched on it. It's the age factor with Tyus 23, DeLon at you know 27. And the, the fact that they were able to get assets back, you know, via second round. I think they got two second round picks. Maybe it was one. I can't yes, remember. Sir. Two from second round picks. Yep. Okay. So this, I think this is kind of a microcosm of this front office too, is the fact of making decisions on the margins and viewing things as more of a value play. So maybe they viewed it as we can get Tyus. We don't think the Minnesota is going to match. We'd rather have him and two, for, or two second round picks than Daylon. We don't think that the difference is that, you know, substantial. So I think that's a way that they're looking at this potentially as well as players. I do trust Tyus as jump shot a little bit more he devolved in his shooting in this recent year and I think a lot of that was that he was initiating the offense more running more dribble pull-up game as opposed to catch and shoot which historically he's been pretty good at Wright is more up and down as a catch and shoot guy I think he can get there as well but not as good of a bet uh Wright's probably a better on-ball defender a little bit more versatile with his size but overall I think Tyus was what my preference would be, especially getting two second round picks with the age alignment and the fact that his decision making is so good. And I really do think he has a lot of shooting upside, mostly off the catch. Like I don't think he's a dynamic pull up shooter. He doesn't have that real pull up three gravity. He's more of like a guy who can play pick and roll, make some reads and, and take mid range shots, which he's not going to be incentivized to do, of course. But all of these guys, like this is why I put them all in the same category as Sadoransky. They're not like traditional scoring point guards. So when you say lead guard, these guys aren't lead guards. They're really like combo guards who are more like a Fred Van Fleet, who is incredible in the finals. But you, you notice Van Fleet's role, and it's more playing off of Kawhi, playing off of Kyle Lowry, and being that kind of secondary ball mover and that high-level decision maker who can also shoot off the catch. That is kind of the role that I see for Tyus. If you would, please, talk people off the ledge. The, the folks that I've talked to that have been most adamant about this, uh, you mentioned Tyus Jones being a catch-and-shoot you know, kind of guy who can improve in that area of his game for sure. One of the major critiques of Tyus compared to DeLon is the idea that DeLon Wright will attack the rim, try to score. He wants to score the ball. Tyus Jones is more of a facilitator first. And if you put him out there with Kyle Anderson and Jay Crowder, who the hell is going to score the basketball? Um, if you would, I to me, at 23 years old, you put him into a system that obviously Taylor Jenkins is going to emphasize guard play. I think that he'll play alongside Ja Morant for stretches of games where he'll be able to help Ja create and they can also create for each other because obviously Morant is a pretty elite passer and, and that skill should translate to the NBA almost immediately, even more so than his shooting. But talk to folks about Tyus as a scorer and how that I don't want to say it's not important because obviously you have to score points to win basketball games. But to me, they are emphasizing the fact that he had this distinct role with the Timberwolves 
and they're kind of connecting that to what he's going to be in Memphis. To me, again, we're talking about kind of progressing through the view of this front office. We'll talk about Josh Jackson and Grayson Grayson Allen next, but they're taking calculated risks, and Tyus Jones is a good calculated risk in that they think that his game can progress within the system that they're establishing if they develop him the right way. And that's catch and shoot, shooting off the dribble, you know, whatever it might be, taking advantage of the opportunities that are going to be presented to him, playing alongside the players he's going to be with the next few years, it all kind of adds up to me to another piece of that front office puzzle of taking smart, calculated bets on players, signing them to smart contracts that don't hurt you down the road if it doesn't work out, but it also allows for you to really look pretty brilliant if it does pay off, and the numbers suggest that it realistically could. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really fascinated to see his fit next to John Morant. I think that's a big allure of this signing to me is like he can really play next to him. And that's something that I wanted to see from Conley if he would have stayed with the Grizzlies is seeing those two guard lineups. So you don't put so much pressure on Morant to create everything like Morant's going to be the guy who puts pressure on the rim. That's what he does. He gets into the paint. He sucks in the defense and he kicks it out like that's what he's best at. And I think, you know, Tyus is not that caliber of player. He's not the kind of guy who's really going to attack the rim relentlessly. He can run a one five pick and roll, though, and he can find guys open and if you have Jaron Jackson if you stagger Jaron Jackson's minutes too to play with Tyus at the five he's going to open up the paint more because Jaron's going to pick and pop he's going to draw that big out that's going to help Tyus get downhill a little bit more because you have to respect Jaron's shot and I I think that's going to be another dynamic is is playing Tyus next to Jaron I'm a little curious to see myself how high Tyus's scoring ceiling is just because he's always played a very specific way and he's always had talent around him even at Duke you know with Justice Winslow Jaleel Okafor. He's never really been the guy in a lineup, really. It's mostly just a tertiary guy. I think that's what he does best, but I'm curious to see how far he can push the envelope as a scorer. And that's clearly something that Memphis is lacking right now. They just don't have a lot of perimeter you know, scoring types, and that's going to be uh, an investment over time. They're going to have to get you know a wing shot creator eventually, or a secondary ball handler that can really dribble past, shoot, make decisions, and get to the rim. So there's going to be other ingredients added. I think that Tyus can fit around all of these guys, though. That's a great place to take a quick breather. When we come back, we'll be back with Coles Wicker of the Stipend. Make sure that you are following him on Twitter at Coles Wicker and make sure that you are sticking around. We'll be right back with more Grizzly Bear Blues Live. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to be finishing up here with Coles Wicker of the Stipend. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at Cole, Z-W-I-C-K-E-R. He does a great job over at that website. He's been on with Peter Edmiston in Memphis, and I'm glad that he was able to make some time for us here on GBB Live. We've been progressing out, taking a look at the front office and the new direction they're taking the Memphis Grizzlies. We started in the previous segment talking about uh, Brandon Clark, who Cole and I both mutually have a, a massive crush on. Then you go out and beyond into other free agent signings. Obviously, the move to go with Tyus Jones instead of DeLon Wright. Or, excuse me, yeah, Tyus Jones instead of DeLon Wright. And now I kind of in that last segment, I hinted at the idea of calculated risks in a small market rebuild. You have to take those types of gambles. And I think Memphis has done that in two particular ways in all the different transactions they've made, one of which being Grayson Allen, who you could easily argue was the least important part of the Mike Conley trade, but is still a young player on a rookie contract that's come to Memphis. Another young guy who did some good things in Utah or excuse me, in the uh, in the Las Vegas Summer League but still struggled overall. And then you have Josh Jackson, who is struggling overall at life, it seems. Um, I wrote about him and, and how he is uh, very fairly broken uh, for such a young man who had such promise, such talent coming out of Kansas. Uh, Phoenix was essentially willing to dump him for pretty much nothing. They paid Memphis to take him. 
These are the types of smart moves that a front office will make. Again, we talk about calculated risk and smart gambles, but it's also very possible that neither of these players are even on this roster this time next year. So Cole, I'm curious as to your take on those two particular moves. It's probable that neither or that it's almost certain that both of them don't work out. It's probable that at least one won't. What value do you see for the Grizzlies? Again, acknowledging that even in the Suns trade with Kyle Korver's contract and, and Javon Carter being shipped out, Josh Jackson might have been the least valuable piece in that trade too. But it, he's a young, talented player, much like Grayson Allen. Josh Jackson, of course, with a better pedigree with the higher draft pick. How do you see those two guys fitting in Memphis long-term, if at all? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't even know if either one has a long-term future in Memphis. These, especially Josh Jackson, I've been around the Suns. I know he needs more of a structured environment. He just, it never really materialized on the floor for him. Overall, he had some kind of off-the-court concerns coming into the draft process. And I, I, he needs to be a more mature person and basketball player. And I don't know if he's going to get that in Memphis. I don't know about, enough about Memphis's culture. Obviously, they're a young team. They're looking at maybe the 14th or the 15th seed in the West just because of how loaded the West is. So can Josh really acclimate to an environment like that? But like you said, it's a very low-risk move. Both these guys, both him and Grayson Allen, you're, you're basically saying, you know, let's get them in our building. We have to make it an, a decision on them based on their team option for next season by the 31st of October. So let's get them in here. Let's, let's take a look. And those, those aren't the best part of those deals. Like D'Anthony Melton to me is a bigger get than both of those guys. I think Melton was featured as much by the Grizzlies saying, this was our target here. We liked him. He was another analytics play, but he's someone who's just, again, follows that kind of, on-court intelligence. He's an incredibly cerebral player. He didn't play, of course, um, his sophomore year, what would have been a sophomore year due to FBI investigation, all of that. So he's a little bit out of sight, out of mind, played for the Suns. Nobody really watched the Suns last year, but very high-level team defender, kind of gets a lot of deflections, has improved his shooting acumen. So I think he was the best part of that deal. But like you said, very low-risk maneuvering here because you're not committed to uh, Josh Jackson or Grace Nowen long-term. You're, you're making a decision on their team options, if they, if you, they don't work, you just cut them. You, you you wave them, and it's not like you have really high-level, valuable cap space right now. You have a ton of cap space next summer regardless, so there's no there's, there's no dice roll, really. There's no like high-leverage situation that's going to come back and bite you in the ass here. I think that's my favorite part of what this front office is doing, Cole. They're, they're making moves and making decisions that are not going to bite them in the ass moving forward. You put it well there. Even when it comes to a Jonas Valanciunas signing, which to me I was hesitant on because we talk about how forward-thinking this group seems to be, and then you sign a guy who, if they ever make it back to the playoffs, and hopefully by year three of this rebuild they're at least in the hunt, um, he might not be playable depending on the series that they're in and the competition in the matchup that they're seeing in that first round, but it's a, it's a descending contract, you know, Jonas Valanciunas getting $16 million this season, who really cares? Because like you said, they have cap space and they're not going to be very good. Valanciunas potentially being a reserve big in the last year of that deal, making $14 million a year. I mean, for God's sakes, Miles Plumley is making 12.5 million this coming season. So Valanciunas at 14 is probably going to still look pretty decent even if he's not a starter for this Grizzlies team, if they compete for the playoffs in year three, they are consistently looking for ways to take risk that isn't going to crush them moving forward. Chris Wallace struggled with that the last few years that he was at the helm of the Grizzlies. The Parsons signing essentially ended the era of Gasol and Conley before anybody else really realized it. Uh, once everybody kind of saw the writing on the wall with his health, you know, that was a crippling move. 
nothing that this group so far has done has crippled what they are going to want to do if they want to be players in free agency next year they can be if they want to take on more bad contracts and get more draft picks they can easily do that they have given themselves such flexibility in such a short amount of time it really is remarkable to view how they have taken what was a very dire situation in memphis and while it's not going to result in immediate wins grizzlies fans should be pretty optimistic about the way things are going right yeah, absolutely. I think this is the right process to undertake. You're trying to build for the long term, maintain flexibility and don't sell out short term. If you can get a guy, if you, if you load up on all your cap space and you basically have a bunch of marginal talent, you don't have guys to really move the needle. That's how you lock yourself into potentially Let's say Jaron Jackson hits, which I'm pretty sure he's going to. And John Morant hits. If, if both of them hit, you still need flexibility to build around those guys. If you just lock in short term, you're not optimizing their ceilings because you have to get guys again, they're within that window too. You want to build this team around your core pieces. And I think they're not compromising that in Jonas Valanciunas. This is a good example here of the contractual commitment here. Wasn't albatross. Like it's, it's a pretty decent contract for Jonas. And I think like you noted, maybe in that third year, if you're trying to contend, which is a very big leap, but let's just say in theory, he might not be playable against the most mobile teams, but short term, you know what he does? He really helps your core Guys, he helps Jaron Jackson withstand those blows of playing the center full time. I think that Memphis is viewing Jaron as their long term five. You don't want him though starting there right now and absorbing all of those blows in the regular season. Jonas is a great screener. That's really going to help John Morant as far as getting to his spot. So you you have to look at it in that context too. It's not just about the signing of the player. It's about what he does for your vision, what he does for your core pieces. And I think this is another example of of that occurring. Finishing up here with Coles Wicker of the Stipend. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at Coles Wicker, Z-W-I-C-K-E-R. Again, great content out there uh, for his website. He's been on with Peter Edmiston in Memphis, a friend of Grizzly Bear Blues and GBB Live. So make sure you're checking him out. He does remarkable work breaking down the NBA in a variety of ways over at that site. I'll get you out of here on this. And I'm curious as to how we see, we've been singing the praises of this group pretty much all show. And now we're going to talk about what that's going to mean for the immediate future of the Grizzlies. I am curious. I'm not going to put you directly on the spot because I have a few teams in mind. I don't have an exact final number uh, of teams that are going to be worse than the Grizzlies, but I'm pretty sure I can count it on at least my two hands. Um, And I probably won't need many fingers on the second hand of squads that are going to be definitively worse than Memphis. The Grizzlies are going to be a bad basketball team. And I think that there's going to be some fans out there that are going to see that as tanking. And and that concerns me. And I want to get your take on it as well, because I don't see this as tanking. I see this as strategically understanding what it takes to build a long-term sustainable winner in the NBA, especially in a market like Memphis, where you're not going to bring in a LeBron James and Anthony Davis. The Los Angeles Lakers were a complete dumpster fire of an organization and still landed two of the top seven or eight players in the entire association simply because they're in Hollywood and people want to go out there for the brand and the weather. Memphis isn't going to get that. So they have to build in a certain way around a culture that they're trying to develop around Jaron and Jaw. That's going to mean that they're going to have to take their lumps with this young group. Uh, If Jonas Valanciunas, Jaron Jackson Jr. are your two best players, you're probably not going to win a ton of games. I think I have the Phoenix Suns probably being as bad, if not worse. Uh, The Washington Wizards, the Charlotte Hornets are all teams that come to mind. Um, How bad do you see this Grizzlies team being? Their pick to Boston from 2020 is top six protected. 
Memphians got pretty tired of the convey or not convey debate, but I foresee that happening again this coming season with Memphis hanging around that number five through seven spot in the lottery. Do you agree with that, or do you think there's room for them to be even worse or perhaps a little bit better than I'm giving them credit for? No, I definitely agree with you. I think it's not an indictment of Memphis. It's for what for first of all, like the Western Conference is absolutely historically loaded. There's like seven teams that you can kind of pencil in to the playoffs, like despite injury. And then there's like another tier of like five or six teams that are actually pretty good. It's really to me, it's Phoenix and Memphis at the bottom of the totem pole here. And, you know, Phoenix added some shooting. They added actual real veteran play to their roster with Ricky Rubio. They struggled with point guard play last year. You have to expect, you know, Devin Booker is arguably the best player on either team. Like, and he is a primary creator for them usually, or like at least secondary creator. Those guys are the floor raisers for a team. Like Memphis is going to take its lumps when you have John Morant, who's probably not going to be even remotely close to Trey Young in his rookie year, just because Trey's such a better shooter. He was more accustomed to running pick and roll in an NBA style offense. So it's going to be a, a process. Like you compare, for me, they compare a little bit to the Eastern Conference teams. Like you noted, the Cavs are going to be really bad, maybe a historically bad defense. The Knicks. Uh, the Wizards, the Hornets, they're in that tier for me. So they're probably like a bottom five, bottom six team along with the Suns in the Western Conference. And again, that's not a negative. This is what you have to do. Like if you, even if they were going to use their cap space to compete right now, like who are they really getting to move the needle in the West? Like the best they could probably do is still like 12 or 13. It's really hard to ascend. So I think the right move is to bide your time, wait for this hardened, you know, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard generation to kind of fizzle out. And then you're ready to take control of that airspace once that happens. And then you'll have assets to potentially trade for another star, or you'll have cap space to sign a free agent and restricted free agency, which is probably their most realistic means of bringing in a free agent long-term. I just love the flexibility. This was an organization that seemed like it was drowning upon itself in terms of not being able to make competent moves Uh, and not having a plan. And now there's a very clear plan, at least it's clear to me. Uh, It starts with Jaron and Ja, and it branches out into Brandon Clark and and all these other guys they're bringing in. And I think the important thing for fans to understand is this is a process, right? This is not going to be something that's fixed right away. We mentioned earlier in the show the idea of them not having enough shooting. They aren't going to address every issue in one year. People need to be patient, and I think that they've done enough in this offseason to earn enough credit to have people say, hey, let's see how this plays out. Yeah, exactly right. I think you have to be patient and you have at least like what what do you need as a franchise? What do you need as a fan base? You either need to be competitive or have the hope of competing. Usually that comes via your young prospects and having guys that you really believe in having that kind of ceiling. Like enjoy Jaron Jackson Jr. I think he really is, to, in my opinion, one of the five best younger prospects in the NBA. He, he's going to be that good. So enjoy that process. We'll see about Morant. I think it's going to be a little bit more of a period where he's going to have to improve over time and he, you have to give him time to develop, you know, primary creators. There's a lot of variance with those guys and it takes a while sometimes to be able to run an offense. It doesn't come to some as naturally as it did De'Aaron Fox in his second year. Maybe that does happen for Morant though, but I think there's a lot of hope in Memphis where you, you at least have the infrastructure via prospects. You have some pick capital and you have like an organization that seems to be making good decisions on the margins. Usually that's a recipe for building a competitive team in time. It's just going to be a process. That hope is so, so valuable. After a couple of years being down in the dumps, it feels like a new day in Memphis. And uh, that's thanks to the new front office, Zachary Kleiman, uh, John, uh, excuse me, uh, Zachary Kleiman, Tayshawn Prince, 
uh, Jason Wexler, that whole crew over at FedEx Forum. Cole, thank you so much for your time. It is much appreciated, and hopefully we'll be able to have you back on down the road. Anytime, man. Always love talking teams, and Memphis is one of my favorite teams right now. So There you uh, go, because of Brandon Clark, (laughs) solely because of Brandon Clark. Hey, Brandon Clark, D'Anthony Melton, all of the guys that I've loved on the margins over the years. There Pair that go. with Darren Jackson. And yeah, it's it's a fun time, man. Memphis on the margins. I think that's going to be a good <laughs> tagline. For Cole, for everybody that's checking out the podcast, wherever you may be listening, make sure you're subscribing, rating, reviewing, all those fun things. Again, thanks to Cole. Thanks to you for listening. I am Joe Molinax. Grind forth, Grizz Nation. This has been Grizzly Bear Blues Live. <laughs>